too much like work. striving for? What are you reaching out to get a hold of? What's important to you? Maybe we can find the answer if we head to the Mediterranean Sea, to beautiful Greece. If we sail along the coast of Greece, all the way up to the northernmost part of the Aegean Sea, we come to the region of Greece known as Macedonia. And then if we travel inland, nine or ten miles, we find the historic city of Philippi, named for Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. If you remember your Shakespeare, Mark Antony catches up to Brutus at Philippi and kills him. Now, Philippi was an unusual place for the Apostle Paul to visit. Paul was Jewish. He focused a lot of his early ministry on Jewish people. It was the Apostle Peter who first focused on the Gentiles. But there were very few Jewish people in Philippi. In fact, there were so few Jews that Philippi had no synagogue. So under normal circumstances, we wouldn't expect Paul to head for Philippi at all. Paul didn't even have Macedonia in mind. He was striving to get to the province of Asia or Asia Minor. But he kept getting turned back. Then he figured if he couldn't get into Asia Minor, he would go into Mycenae or Bithynia in the north of Turkey. But the book of Acts tells us that he couldn't get in there either. So he's running out of places to go. Just about the only place left is the city of Troas on the northwest coast of Turkey. So he heads down there. Maybe he thought he'd hang out, do some ministry there for a while. But there he is, his first night in the Troas Holiday Inn. Paul's snoring away. The Bible says during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. I don't think there's any other way Paul would have gotten the idea to go into such a Gentile area. But after such a dramatic word from God, Paul and his team got ready immediately and set sail on the Aegean Sea and landed in the first major city inside Macedonia, Philippi. Now their first Sabbath in town, Paul and his team, as good Jewish Christians, of course, look for a place of worship. There's no synagogue, so they can't go that route. So the Bible says that they went outside the city gate to the river where they thought someone might have set up a a place of prayer, you know, a quiet, peaceful setting. And sure enough, there are some women there, so they strike up a conversation. One of the women is named Lydia. She's not from around there. Where is she from? Asia Minor. She's from the area that Paul had a longing to reach, but somehow couldn't reach. Lydia is a businesswoman. In her hometown of Thyatira in Asia Minor, they make fabulous purple dye and exotic purple fabrics. So she buys this stuff from the Thyatirans, brings it to Philippi, and sells it to the Greeks. But Lydia is not primarily about striving for wealth. She's striving for a connection to God. Lydia is a seeker. She has a hunger in her heart to connect with God, but she really has no idea how. The only thing she's figured out so far is to worship the way Jewish people worship because they seem to have a connection to God. So here she is in a city with no synagogue, not a drop of Jewish blood in her, striving to be a good Jew, 
just so she can love God well. Well, when Paul shared the gospel with her, when he told her about Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus had made for her and the fact that she could be saved by faith alone because of this amazing gift of grace, Lydia was sold. She was thrilled. The Bible says she and her household were baptized to signal to all their friends that they were committed to Christ. And then she said to Paul, Hey, look, you're going to need a place to stay. Stay in my place. So the team moved in. And they began doing ministry in Philippi. Lydia went down in history as the first convert to Christ on European soil. She was the first Christian baptized on European soil. And with Paul and the team, she founded the first Christian church on European soil. Unfortunately, things didn't go well after that. One day on their way to the place of prayer down by the river, they were met by a slave girl, not just an ordinary slave girl, a slave girl possessed by a demon. And not just an ordinary demon, a demon that predicted the future. The demon would predict the future, the slave girl would act as a fortune teller, and her owner would pocket the fortune-telling fee. And he loved this because he was all about getting rich. His life was a constant striving for wealth. But the demon was nervous because now these Christians were living in town. So he drove the girl to start following Paul and the team around day after day, shouting and calling attention to them. She wasn't telling lies. She was telling the truth. She would shout, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. But after days and days of this, Paul got fed up, turned around, cast the demon out of her in Jesus' name. Well, there goes the fortune-telling business. So the slave girl's owner has Paul and Silas dragged into the marketplace in front of the authorities, charged with the crime of being Jews, also with throwing the city into an uproar, and, quote, advocating unlawful customs, end quote. The crowd joined in on the attack. And the magistrates ordered the two men to be stripped, severely flogged, and thrown into prison overnight. The historical account in the Bible, you can read it for yourself in Acts 16, says the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So the jailer, who is striving to follow orders, doesn't just put him in any old part of the jail. He puts them in the inner cell and he fastens their feet in stocks. Now, it's midnight. Paul and Silas have been flogged severely. They are in pain beyond anything you or I could imagine. And what are they doing? You know, I would be plotting my escape, or at the very least, plotting my court appeal. But that's not where Paul and Silas's heads were at. What were they striving for? Acts 16.25 says, At the midnight hour, they were praying and singing hymns to God. They were still about thing one, loving God well, as the first and most important thing in life. And the Bible says the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, they had to be saying to themselves, what's up with this? See, loving God well makes an impression on people. But then God intervenes miraculously. He causes a violent earthquake, not just any earthquake, an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison and makes all the doors fly open and all the prisoners' chains come loose. It was, I think, kind of a Pirates of the Caribbean moment. So the jailer, who had a room right there in the prison, of course, wakes up. And when he sees 
that not only are these new guys on the loose, after he had specific orders to watch them closely, but all the other prisoners are free too. The, the jailer just freaks out. He pulls his sword. He's going to commit suicide. But Paul shouts at him, tells him to stop. Look, he says, we're all still here. Nobody's escaped. And the jailer is stunned. Acts 16 says the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out of their cell and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, apologize. No, that's not right. They replied, try really, really hard to be a good boy the whole rest of your life. No, that's not right either. They actually replied, in the simplest possible terms, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole family. No more striving. No more anxiety. God was with him. And he finally knew it. Okay, years go by. Paul puts a lot of miles on his body, can't seem to stay out of trouble, winds up in jail. Eventually, he's in prison in Rome. This is big-time trouble. He's going to be tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. They're going to behead him. During the two-year legal process, he sits in prison, and he writes. And some of what he writes is inspired by the Spirit of God. It winds up in our New Testament. One of these letters is what we call the book of Philippians. It's a short warm-hearted, loving letter to Lydia, to the jailer and his family, to the Christians Paul left behind in that little church by the river. I could read it to you start to finish in about 15 minutes, but here's the heart of it. Paul writes to his friends at Philippi about epictosis, striving. Sometimes epictosis is translated reaching or reaching out or reaching forth unto, stretching out or stretching forward, straining toward or straining ahead. Maybe as Paul writes to his old friends at Philippi, he's remembering how he strove to get into Asia Minor and then strove to make his second choice, Bithynia, epictosis. Or maybe it's more likely that he's fondly remembering meeting Lydia for the first time hearing her story, how she strove for a connection with God, strove in all her Gentileness to be a good Jew. Epictasis. He could probably remember the slave girl's owner and the compulsion for wealth that drove him to get Paul and Silas arrested. Epictasis. And the jailer's fixation on following orders. Epictasis. And then the freedom the jailer experienced when he came to understand that God loved him. Epictasis is what a watchman does from the watchtower. He peers into the distance. Maybe he narrows his eyes. He's looking out, seeing as far as he can, as if by squinting he can see further. In the Old Testament, in the Song of Solomon, we get a sense of epictasis when the girl gets a whiff of the guy's cologne and she's drawn to him. Her heart reaches out to him. She starts fantasizing about running away with him. It's a yearning. It's a pressure, epictosis. 
What's the focus of your epictasis? Paul says, don't waste that energy. Focus it on something that's worthwhile. What are you striving for? Don't waste your life striving for position, for power, for stuff that won't matter in eternity. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What should my approach to life be then? Paul says, based on his own lifetime of experience, if you're going to strive, strive to be like Jesus. Love God, love people. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, you can strive and strive and strive. You can push and pull and prod. You can scramble for wealth and maneuver for position and connive to get what you want. You can pursue pleasure and comfort with every fiber of your being. But even Jesus, who could have had anything he wanted, took a radically different approach. Some people drink themselves to death or eat themselves to death. Some party themselves to death. Some spend their lives searching for the perfect marriage partner or the most fabulous sexual experience. Some people work themselves to death, but Jesus was obedient to death. He obeyed himself right out of a life and let God raise him up, lift him up, exalt him. Jesus just loved people and let God take care of him. He was our perfect example. He demonstrated how to channel our striving wisely. He made himself the gold standard of intelligent Epictasis. Jesus called us to love God by loving people, and he showed us how it's done. He made himself the one and only valid model to pursue. A lot of people try to achieve excellence by other means. They strive for righteousness by some seemingly worthwhile strategy. Paul himself tried it. He didn't start out understanding what was important. In fact, he was awesome at striving for righteousness in ways that really looked right in his circumstances. He goes on to remind his friends at Philippi, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, observing every detail of the law of Moses, of the people of Israel, God's chosen nation, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the group that produced King David and Jesus himself. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, the strictest of the strict, religiously speaking. As for zeal, persecuting the church, he didn't just follow the rules, he worked to stamp out the rule breakers. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless, he said. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Well then, What's important, Paul? What's worth my epictasis? What's worth striving for? Here's what he says in the very next line. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. This word literally I can't say in polite company, but it's often translated dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, 
that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Knowing Christ, following his example, giving my life to loving God by loving people, that's what's worth striving for. Am I there yet? Was Paul there yet by the time he was old? He had done ministry all over the known world. He was the Billy Graham of his day. Wrote more books of the New Testament than any other guy. And yet he knew it's a process. And as long as we're trapped in these physical bodies living in this earthly realm, the process will continue. He says to his friends at Philippi, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's a picture of epictosis, of striving. He says, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm still in the process. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, not dragged down by the memory of my sins and failures in the past, straining toward what is ahead, there's the actual word, epictosis, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Hmm, forgetting what is behind. You know, I'm embarrassed to remember how I treated someone before. But I'm letting go of what's behind and instead focusing my epictosis on Jesus. When I hire a worker to fix my plumbing and he blows the schedule and doesn't act like he cares and I'm in my fourth week without a kitchen sink, I'm going to respond to him differently today than I would have before if I know what I'm really striving for. When my Chrysler waits till the day before our family vacation to start spewing a foul-smelling black smoke, I'm going to respond differently today than I would have before, before I got my epictosis straight. When someone I trusted betrays me, when someone I love falls dangerously ill, when my company sells out to a larger corporation and my job is suddenly in jeopardy, these are all situations where the focus of my epictosis will make a very practical difference. I'm striving to be filled with His Spirit, as fully surrendered to his influence as I can. And in spite of how I might fail today, I'm going to get up again tomorrow morning and re-surrender. I'm going to focus my epictosis on Jesus all over again. Oh, yeah, this is the way to do it. (laughs) I can do this all day. What next? I like people to know how hard it works. Ministry is hard work. Don't let anybody tell you different.